0: The word trauma is everywhere, but what does trauma really mean and can we heal and recover from the impact of assault, neglect, coercive control, parentification, bullying, loss, sexual violence, war, accidents or even destructive acts of nature? In this episode we speak with Dr Ahona Guha, a forensic and clinical psychologist who is also a survivor of complex trauma herself as well as the author of new book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. Dr. Ohona helps us unpack what big T and little T trauma are. She explains why some people heal from unbearable experiences while others continue to struggle. And she helps us understand why some of us may even minimise our own traumas, not only to others, but also to ourselves. Personally, I don't know a family untouched by trauma, and therefore it's my belief trauma is everyone's business. Luckily, Ahona agreed. So whether you're a trauma survivor, a clinician, someone who loves a survivor, or someone seeking just to better understand abuse, then this chat is for you. Here's my hopeful chat with Dr. Ahona Guha. Welcome, Ahona. Thanks for joining us on Human Cogs. Um, now, you are a clinical and forensic psychologist who specializes in trauma. Yep. You're a survivor with lived experience of your own complex trauma. And you're also a passionate fur parent to Carla. <laughs> She's your greyhound rescue. Tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to yep. rescue Carla and how has she changed your life? Um, I've had her for about five years. And
1: before her, I grew up with, um, grew up with Labrador's. So loud, messy, big, um, eat lots of food, but also very high energy. And then I was thinking about getting a dog and this was at the end stages of my PhD and I knew I'd be working full time. I knew I'd probably be living in a smaller place, you know, inner city, Melbourne, house prices, all of those excellent things and went, well, I need a dog that's going to be a little bit more lifestyle compatible. Um, and and friends are just the greyhounds and I first kind of looked them up and went, they're weird. They're a bit ugly. I mean, that was my first thought, very shallow. Uh, but then I looked up a couple of YouTube videos and absolutely fell in love. And I really always, always wanted to adopt, not to buy. Um, and it just felt like a really good fit for me in terms of my lifestyle, but, but also you know the general placid personality and temperament. She's so good; I can take her anywhere. Um, the pub, the park, sometimes walks friends, friends' houses. She's great with babies. She's great with everything. Mm. Um, and in terms of changed my life, everything. Exercise, so many new friends, just um, someone around I could always talk to during
0: the pandemic. Mm. So I didn't go mad. Yeah, they're very precious, aren't they? I have two rescues. Oh, I'm, I'm all about rescuing. Rescue, a rescue border collie, and then the oh. other is a bit more mixed. He's Jack Russell Cavalier sort of mixed.
1: Gorgeous. They're so both pretty high energy. That I would assume if you've got the Jack Russell.
0: Uh, yeah, they are. They are. But they're old. They're old now. Okay. So. But yeah, uh, they have taught me more than. Most, yeah. most humans have taught me.
1: Dogs are precious. <laughs> I don't know how we got through the pandemic without them, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah.
0: Well, welcome, Carla, who, I, whose little nose I did see on the screen. Yeah, as we she's, our call.
1: <laughs> she's lying over there in the corner. She just dug her bed up. You know, her dogs rearrange yeah. beds. Now she's just watching.
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Ahona, the child. Tell us about some of your Ooh. younger years. So I'm a third culture kid. So
1: I grew up in West Africa. Well, I was born in in India, Um, lived there for about a year and a half, then moved to West Africa at about the age of one and a half, lived there until I was about 10 and then moved back to India for the next 10 years. And I've been out in Australia since. So lots of movement, lots of disruption. Not that it really felt disruptive at the time, because I think kids have a higher threshold for, for adaptation, maybe than adults do. Plus, you know, I didn't have to organize the move, my parents did. Um I was very different as a child, I think. I was quite an obedient, shy, person, um, quite anxious a lot of the time um which may have been partly what sprungled sprungboard, sprungboard s- springboarded me into into psychology um, but also very imaginative, very fair very focused on concepts of justice I read a lot. Including lots of books about psychology, which is probably what's yeah driven me to both my arms of work, so both the psych and also the writing.
0: Mm, okay, that sounds like a, a really. Uh, are there siblings? Have you got siblings in the family? I've got I've got one one sister. Yeah, but you were moving around quite a lot. So were you making needing to make new friends to integrate into new communities, new schools, new cultures?
1: Exactly. It was. A different way of being. So Africa, we were quite isolated within a bigger expatriate community in some ways. So when I say isolated, we were part of the the expatriate community but it was quite unsafe there so I kind of went to school and there'd be there'd be riots happening on both sides of the road and people setting cars on fire and things like that and um, our little minibus driver would just put um, a green branch with leaves into or, or onto the windscreen and then kind of drive on through which was their symbol for kids on board do not harm and we were never harmed but But that was the level of, I suppose, chaos that I grew up seeing. Mm. Um, And of course, the making friends, you know, moving school, I think, when I went to Africa and then came, came back to India and then moved schools a couple of times, I mean, lots of us have moved schools so could experience that but I think very different culturally as well
0: very sounds like quite quite a mixed experience and I'm sure it's been quite informative in in who you are today
1: probably yeah
0: in your book which is called reclaim understanding complex trauma and those who abuse you do share that you have your own lived experience of complex Mm -hmm. trauma but you don't give any details and it's obviously very deliberate how did you arrive at that level of disclosure and why does it matter?
1: Yeah, look, it was a tricky one. I spent a lot of time thinking about what to say and whether I say anything at all. Ultimately, I decided to because it felt somewhat disingenuous to encourage people not to be ashamed, not to feel stigma, to to be able to reclaim their own history and to be okay with who they are without acknowledging that I too shared this. It felt like it might be a little bit duplicitous. Um, So that's how I settled on saying something. I chose to not share details simply because that felt like a level of disclosure for both myself and for people within my family that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. Also, didn't really want clients to read about that and then to feel like they had to take care of me or to kind of come into the therapy room knowing knowing too much about me. So, I think ultimately, I settled on something that felt right for me. But that would also protect my clients past, present and possibly future as well. Mm.
0: And that's an interesting topic, just psychologist to psychologist, around how how much do we share, how much do we disclose of our own lives. And I know when I was training, you know, many years ago, really we were, the directive was very much around not sharing. and Like Slate, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. you're the expert and yep. you don't need to share anything of yourself, which doesn't sit exactly. with me at all well because I see, Yeah, I mean, for you, what does that look like?
1: I think it was the same, to be honest, when I came through. There was quite a prohibition around self-disclosure which i think is actually okay when you're training because you you can do a lot of harm by maybe sharing too much Um, and you have to know the rules before you break the rules i think so that's probably a good stance to hold right at the start Uh, i mean obviously working in the field of trauma i think the blank slate approach doesn't help because it feels a little bit like a wall for clients Mm. Um, and I think the more traditional approach can feel quite cold and quite withholding. Which for people who've maybe experienced emotional abuse or a neglect can feel like a form of re-traumatization if it's if it's not done well. Yes. Um, and it's not very congruent with my own personality style as well. It's been one that I wrestle with. I don't I don't have the answer down pat. I think I just try and bring my own personality in. obviously have a social media, even just things like sharing. I have a dog feels a little bit awkward sometimes, but all of my clients have seen her because she likes coming up behind me when I'm doing telehealth and shouting. So (laughs) those (laughs) are the kinds of things you can't avoid really. So yeah, look, it's a gently, gently kind of feeling things out approach, but yeah, it's such an interesting shift, I think, in the psych world.
0: Mm, I agree. And with regards to trauma, it is everywhere. So we have... um from yeah. Bruce Perry and Oprah's book to Gabor Mate, who's everywhere, and I—I I know that, of course, our feeds. Um, are really created by our interest. So my feed is full of this. Maybe everyone okay. else's isn't, yep. but it seems like every time I open social media, every time yeah. I open my inbox, my emails, I, there's another um, training session on trauma. It just feels like trauma is everywhere. So help us understand how you define trauma and perhaps also if you could say something to the big T, little T constructs yeah, that a lot of people yeah. make reference to.
1: So I've talked about the big T, little T thing in my in my book a little bit, but look broadly speaking, when I think about trauma, I think about difficult, horrifying events which typically sit outside the realm of you know, normal human experience. So it's both a thing which happens to a person, but also then the psychological consequences of it. So so the word trauma can be can be used for those. You can have a car accident that can be a, be a trauma, but then the the after effects of what you experience it may be PDSD and that's that's also trauma mm. in terms of the big t little t that was um that was created i think was it in the dsm for when they defined um, pdst and said that there that there has to have been something life-threatening
0: mm. for
1: you to actually meet the criteria for PTSD. so any big t event is largely something which Satisfies that, you know, criteria. And so whether it's something like a violent assault, a sexual assault, a car accident, a natural disaster, those are all big T events. Anything that's still out of the bounds of, I suppose, what we call normal um, and, you know, normal and maybe difficult, but but which it's outside those those bounds and is actually moving into the too hard for your psyche to process, but not quite in the big T thresholds. It's within the little T thresholds. So that could be things like coercive control, cumulative acts of physical violence, um, neglect, um, bullying. Those are those are all forms of little T trauma.
0: With regards to little T and big T, I sometimes say to clients. One of us could be lying face down in a puddle and another one of us could be lying down in a swimming pool and someone else could be lying face down in the ocean. But we're all struggling to breathe and struggling to cope.
1: That's a great one. I really like that. I'm <laughs> gonna I'm going to borrow that. Thank
0: you. <laughs> you can, you can, it's yours. Yep. <laughs> From me to you. Um but this raises another question that I know will yeah. be familiar to you and it certainly is to me, and that's one of comparative suffering. Mm. When clients say, Oh mine's not my story doesn't really constitute trauma, it's not as important, or it's not as painful, or I'm not as worthy to suffer, or I shouldn't even be here. all of of the comparative suffering statements.
1: Absolutely.
0: What are your thoughts? How do you work with that? How do you support people if they yeah. minimize their experience?
1: I see that happening a lot, and it's typically a form of form of defense people put up because if this thing wasn't you know bad enough, then maybe they don't have to acknowledge that it, that it was a trauma which has actually affected them. It can be very generational as well because I think it's more common for older people to come in saying all of these awful things happened to me, but that's but that's okay. I still coped. And I think that was a, a little bit of the stiff upper lip style of style of coping that was encouraged. I think more common for younger people to come into me and say similar things, but use the line of that's just a first world problem. Yes. Or I'm yes. very privileged and so I shouldn't feel like this. But essentially it's still the same form of minimization, I think. Yes. Um How I cope with that or kind of work with that therapeutically is knowing that the client's there. And I think that they're there because they understand that there's something happening. Sometimes they've drawn the links between the trauma and between their symptoms, and they're coming in really secretly wanting a little bit of validation. Other times they haven't drawn the links and they're really surprised that, you know, their dad put them down all of the time. And now they have this internalized issue with self-worth and so low mood um, either way I find that just kind of naming it is really helpful um and also just flat out flat out calling it. Sometimes and saying that there's no invisible trauma measurement scale and that mm. this was difficult for you and if it's if it's difficult for you that's the only yardstick that we need we don't need to move into the space where we think about who has it worse or better mm. this is still hard
0: yeah I think you've articulated that beautifully I think something else people often say is but I know my parents love me I know my parents did the best yeah. they could do and absolutely there seems to be understandably a push pull between. Yeah, you know, good in inverted commas, parental intent, and painful outcomes, and it's confusing.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, thinking back to the sort, the sort of knowledge my own parents had, and there were a couple of cultural influences as well, because obviously I was born in, in India, which doesn't have any kind of maternal child health nurse facility or or anything like that. So I was brought up on old wives' tales, really. But even comparing how things are done now to how things are done here now and the kind of knowledge my my generation holds, thinking about the way people kind of parented 20 years ago, there was nowhere, nowhere nearly the amount of information around attachment, around, around infant bonding, emotional needs. These were all just very, very arbitrary words that um, people didn't really understand. So I think parenting's changed and A lot of generations of parents have possibly caused some harm despite their best intentions. Mm. And I think that's what we are seeing now with the really high rates of mental health distress. I think lots of which is probably underpinned by trauma and some very poor resilience and coping. Mm. But yeah, there is this push and pull, I think, where people understand that usually their parents love them and that's not always the case. There There are parents who are flat out abusive. And it's hard to hold in mind that, but also say they loved me, they did their best, but it wasn't good enough.
0: Why do you think, this is a million-dollar question, but Mm. why do we see that some people experience unimaginable pain and Mm. and, um, abuse and, as you say, physical and sexual violence, neglect, coercive control, um, bullying, the list goes on, and some people come out kind of okay some people come out not okay at all we see everything from perfectionism to estrangement to anxiety to full-blown addiction and then of course repeating a lot of the patterns that was so painful which makes it's hard for us to wrap our head around that someone did this to me and now I'm going to do the same to someone else
1: And I see a lot of that within my own forensic work. So when I work with people who offend and who may end up in prison or within the criminal justice system, I think, as you say, there's a huge spectrum of coping responses, a very hard for me to put my finger on why people or why certain people may be okay, others aren't. I think it's certainly not to do with how strong a person is, but probably more likely to do with a range of factors, like maybe the age in which the trauma happened. Mm. whether it was a one time event or more or more cumulative whether they actually had other protective factors in place so if you have abusive parents but you have a really safe grandparent you might actually receive enough you know buffering to to not take on some of the trauma Mm. if you were able to make sense of it if you were able to understand it if you were able to still finish school and get a job instead of going down the drug use pathway because that's the pathway i see a lot in my forensic line of work where people experience difficult traumas just like a lot of my private practice clients do but because of difficulties within the home or with um or with where their family's at in life, they start to disengage from school early, they um, start hanging out with peers who are offending, they start using drugs, and then that starts an entire cascade. And that's a very simplistic pathway and that's not all of them, Mm. but it's often a trajectory that people start to go down Mm. um, that maybe separates, yeah. Yes,
0: some of those core or key protective factors that can help are, I think, I think yeah and, and hopeful actually when I hear yeah. you explain that because there are many people that experience um horrendous trauma but yeah. it may have happened in their adult years not their child years or it's happened as an isolated exactly. event not a repeated event use the word yeah. cumulative or that there's good supports around them so it helps us to not be defined I guess by the exactly. experience that we've had but look at the buffers
1: And I think thinking about my own experiences, you know, the reason I was probably able to recover from them is because I started therapy quite early. Mm. So I was about 22, I think, when I started seeing my psychologist um, and did um, quite a few years of very intensive work, Mm. which, um, yeah, just allowed me the scope and the space to change things completely. So I wasn't slapping a Band-Aid on and doing a few sessions of CBT and moving on, but really excavating and digging out what happened, talking about it over and over again, making sense of it and making sense of how it's changed me and how it's changed how I respond to two things. So it was probably the age, possibly the fact that I'm psychologically minded and can put some of these things together, but also my life outside was stable. So I was very safe. I was working, I was studying, it's all of those intangible things that really help you Recover from a trauma, I think.
0: And is that the word we we use? Is it recovery? Is it healing? Is it coping? <sighs> is it curing? What what is what is the desired? And this might, you know, of course, vary yeah. from person to person. But what do you see is the desired outcome of helpful and impactful treatment and interventions?
1: That's a really great question. No one's ever asked me that before. I don't know what word i would use specifically i suppose that would be based around what the person i'm working with um feels most most aligned with, maybe and again i'd say that the outcome is probably going to change for for everyone based on where they're at in life and what's maybe realistic for them which is again based on what the initial trauma looked looked like i think if there's there's a couple of things that people could understand how it's changed them if they can work their way to a sense of understanding how they think and feel if they can learn to maybe manage emotion if they can learn to think about the world as maybe a slightly safer place than they did right right after the trauma happened if they can think about the events without feeling the same upsurge of distress if they can learn to function well in the world Whatever that looks like for them. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be being a psychologist. It could simply be working and living or walking your dog or being able to go out and see people without great anxiety.
0: That's probably enough. Mm, maybe we're too hung up on the semantics of because the word cure doesn't sit well with me.
1: No same. I never really use that. In terms of a mental health diagnosis, that's an Mm. interesting point. Mm. Yeah,
0: and yet in the typical, you know, in the orthodox traditional medical model, yeah, we there is much talk of cure and fixing things. Yeah, doesn't apply in the psychological sphere.
1: I mean, that's what we have with you know Medicare at the moment. So all of all of the conversations that we've had over the past three or four months, with the twenty sessions just being slashed to ten, there's this idea that psychologists should be fixing people and then sending them out that if they come back to psychologists, that's showing that the cure has failed. Whereas I see a psychological issue far more like a chronic illness that's going to occasionally go go into remission for a while, but you still need to keep doing certain things to keep it at
0: bay, Mm. including therapy. Yeah, I mean, don't get me started on Medicare yeah. as a psychologist, because I think unfortunately so many people feel that the Medicare system informs the psychological process. So Absolutely. If, if Medicare says 20 sessions, then 20 sessions must be what I need. If Medicare says 10 sessions, then it must be 10 sessions that I need.
1: Exactly.
0: It used to be six sessions, you know, when it first came in. So, yeah. you know, it's it's an arbitrary number that doesn't inform the process, but it's confusing for people because they're saying, well, that's what I'm being rebated for. Anyway, we di- we digress on our soapboxes. Of- it's
1: a very hard one though, especially for complex trauma, where as you probably know, people just come in with a range of so many difficulties and diagnoses. And the first few sessions are actually spent sifting through all of the you know, diagnoses a person's accumulated over the course of their lifetime mm. and trying to work out a reasonable, realistic treatment plan. So there's no way that you can do that in the 10 sessions. But but because of Medicare, that's often what people expect. And I will just gave it at the outset and say this work won't be done within within the yeah. 10 sessions. Yeah,
0: I'm not doing a lot of clinical work anymore, but I used yeah. to say um, this is a bonus. It's a bonus 10 or a bonus 20, but it doesn't inform the process. So it's yeah. sort of the cherry on top, but it, it, it's not the backbone of the work or doesn't exactly. explain you know, the work. Yeah. Talking of the therapeutic process, and you've talked a bit about seeing your psychologist and your therapeutic experience, what are your thoughts on treatment for trauma, whether it's big T or little T or mm. m- medium T, <laughs> um, with regards to what I guess I would call top down? As by top down, I'm thinking of um, talk therapy, so cognitive behavior body, yeah, yeah. Compared to bottom up, which I would talk more yeah. about the body, or it can also be um, medical interventions. So we've got those yeah. three three different approaches. Mm. How how do you see those separately and together as being uh, effective treatments?
1: I would probably use them in kind of conjunction together. So if you're thinking of the top-down therapies, I do know that the bottom-up therapies, so a lot of body works, getting a lot of attention at the moment, which is okay, Lots of those therapies haven't been tested for trauma and they don't have a huge amount of of evidence behind them at this point in time.
0: Just could you define what some of those are when you say that?
1: Somatic experiencing is one that I've heard a lot about. There's a weird one that keeps popping up on my LinkedIn called brain spotting. Uh, I've kind of tried to look into it, but I haven't actually worked out what it is and it doesn't really have any, any evidence behind it. Yoga is a bottom up one, but again, it started to be to be tested. There is actually some good evidence for trauma informed yoga, and we do know that the body can hold trauma, certainly, and that we can experience things physically, and that a a element of learning to work with the body and with your own central nervous system is really useful. However, I don't know that I'd be that I'd be able to or that I, that I can believe necessarily that, you know, without a language-based approach where we are starting to form insight into how a trauma's has changed a person's thinking and feeling that we are going to be able to move into the healing, cure, recovery phase. So mm. we do need to work on bodily responses and the startle response, all of those things, which is where the bottom-up stuff can be really helpful. But I do still think fundamentally talking about the trauma you know, whether you're doing more exposure-based work or whether you're doing some cognitive work around how it's how it's changed your beliefs about the world, then that's also really essential. Mm. From a medical management perspective, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not going to delve into that too much. There's no specific medication for trauma, but there are certainly medications that can help with the with the symptoms of trauma. So things like sleep and nightmares and mood. And that can be a useful um adjunctive treatment as well, I think.
0: Mm. What might some questions be for someone who's looking for a therapist, a trauma-informed therapist? Because if you've never seen someone and you're listening to this thinking, you know, I've, I have minimized, I have, I I have ignored and it is something I'd like to do. Where do I start?
1: Well, I... Would be looking maybe at one of the bigger um, psychology member organization websites or maybe be speaking with your with your GP um, asking for good trauma trained psychologist recommendations. Mm. Um yeah, I think the APS as as well as the AAPI both have both have trauma under their specializations. Mm. What else? I think, yeah, calling calling people up or maybe emailing them and actually asking if they do specialize in trauma because you want that match. You don't want someone who just does say anxiety or general life adjustment, because then you circle around the issue and you might kind of talk around the trauma without ever actually working on it. Mm. And I think working on it looks quite different to working around it.
0: I agree. But conversely, some therapists perhaps who haven't got the training in trauma might be addressing some some significant traumatic events in ways that are unhelpful and can be re-traumatizing.
1: Absolutely true. I mean, I would hope that most psychologists, and I'm using that term very deliberately because we're, because we're both psychologists, would have enough experience and training with what they've been through to not at least re-traumatize clients. Having said that, I've heard some really awful stories, so I'm not going mm. to assume that all psychologists are perfect. Mm. But I do think that that's a really important point that you raise. that if you don't have specific trauma training, then it's important to not take it on, mm. which is absolutely okay because we all work in different fields and it's and it's absolutely fine to say sorry i don't actually work on that but that's a really important issue that you raised yes um let's let's kind of work on maybe finding you someone who can actually help you through that yes what i find difficult is when people have a trauma history and that that's underpinning a lot of what they're bringing but that's never actually identified. And so people aren't putting the pieces together and they'll just work on, you know, I had I had a fight with, with X or I'm having this issue at work without looking at the patterns that are trauma-based.
0: You've talked already a little bit today about your forensic work, which is outside of my my remit. What does that look like for you? What what's what's How does that play out day to day?
1: So that's within the... Um, within the broader public forensic mental health space. So I don't do any kind of forensic work privately just for safety and risk issues. So I work with people who have offended to, to assess risk um, to, to other people, but also to treat and to try and manage the risk. So some really high risk offenders who engage in general interpersonal violence. So things like stalking, sex offending, intimate partner violence, general violence, arson and threats, those are most of the people I'd see. Um, so it involves assessments. Assessments could be for court, could kind of be for community corrections to try to understand what's brought them to this point in their lives where they have offended, to try and unpick the offending, to do a risk assessment and then determine the sort of treatment that's most appropriate and for some clients to actually provide the treatment as well.
0: And is it your experience that a lot of these offenders have also experienced? Trauma themselves,
1: absolutely. In you know the hundreds of offenders I've seen, there are only two people who jump out at me who don't have a trauma history. And there was still with those clients a level of early misattunement and lack of attachment. Whether that was because of the, their temperament, and I think for both these clients there were some very strong biological issues and very very difficult temperaments um, but everyone else has has had a trauma history and most common themes seem to be child abuse and domestic violence that they saw being perpetrated by their own parents and that's then sent them down a difficult trajectory.
0: You say in your book there are few monsters in this life but there are many damaged people who damage other people. Yeah What is a monster? (laughs)
1: Um, I suppose I hear the word monster being used a lot within the realms of trying to explain why people offend or harm other people. So we use the words narcissist, psychopath, all of these terms very, very quickly. And I think there's a general sense of trying to other the perpetrator. You know, they're different to me. I wouldn't hurt someone. I'm a good person. And that seems to be the function, I think, to push these people away and say they're very different to us. But we know that things like child abuse and family violence happen all around us, across all realms of society. So these people are amongst us. And for most of us have given the right triggers, you know, whether the trigger is sleep deprivation, stress, financial stress, um. Substance use, there might come a time at which we do behave in that way. Hmm. So I very deliberately wanted to start to break down that question and to start to explore why most people. I mean, there are some kind of monsters, but most people who offend or who harm other people are not are not callous, cold monsters. Most of them are very traumatized and sure, they might be antisocial as well sometimes, but there's a lot of things which have led them to that point.
0: Yeah, that sounds like very challenging work, but I like your compassionate approach to, you know, how many babies are born monsters.
1: And that's the thing. There's times when I'm working with an offender and we're not getting anywhere and I'm feeling frustrated and I'm experiencing all of this internal turmoil but then I get a glimpse of the child this person was and there's something that they say or there's a moment when they cry or there's something which happens where you see the wounded vulnerable child inside who decided that I've been hurt and I'm not going to let myself be hurt anymore Mm -hmm. or you know whatever belief it is that they've formed and you go snap that's That's the moment. That's that's where this started.
0: And and isn't that true of all of us in to some degree? Absolutely, to some degree.
1: I think you know all of the things we do. We all have um, times when we are dysregulated, to use a very clinical term. And I think we can trace most of those moments, if not back to trauma, but just to a sense of our stuffs being triggered. You know, you might be feeling a bit abandoned, a bit lost.
0: If people are listening who have their own trauma experience or perhaps someone who is a loved one, either a parent or a partner or a mm. friend of someone that has been through perhaps a, a recent trauma or, or a childhood trauma, w- what is your main message? What's your takeaway and why did you yeah. write your book, Reclaim?
1: Yeah, so I wrote the book to provide information about what's often difficult concept to grasp. So as we've talked about complex trauma or the more cumulative little t traumas can be quite different to the one big event, which is is what we often talk about. And I wanted to shed some light on it and really move away from some of the mixed messaging out there because there's a lot of misinformation about about trauma. So it was important to me to have a good evidence-based book Look, in terms of the key messages, so A, recovery is possible, Mm. I think, and really important to hold hope. There is help out there, and I think matching the sort of help you're looking for to your your needs carefully is really important to focus on getting social support. So one of the things to not do after trauma is to keep it all to yourself and to try to internalise And when people do that for entirely understandable reasons, that's often when I see the normal trauma recovery process get stuck, and that's when people move into PTSD. So being able to talk about it, being able to share, to ask for support, to really start to to normalize some of the experiences that happen after a trauma is really
0: important. So you're talking there about normalising your response, not the event, but your response. Normalising your response,
1: exactly. So all of the emotions you have, you know, really understandable to feel sad, scared, horrified, angry, disgusted, all of these things, you know, just to allow the emotion to come, allow some of the intrusions because they will happen initially because that's your brain trying to make sense of it but if they do continue for too long that's that's actually when you want to get help Mm -hmm. but really to start to understand that that's your brain your body trying to understand the trauma instead of being scared of it or instead of being scared of the of the of the emotions to to allow them to settle and then to seek help if they don't settle Mm -hmm. it's really important beautiful
0: but above all i'm hearing hope there is hope
1: I think that's the main motive. I think hope is hope is possible recovery is possible. It's going to look differently for everybody and that's okay.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, but I think that's a key message Mm. that there is change.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So well, thank you thank you for sharing because these these are complex issues and as we spoke yeah. about before we started recording some people shy away from them or or perhaps feel they don't relate or it's it's not for them to discuss or uh, it's uncomfortable or it's foreign but I yeah. mean actually show me a family unit that has not been touched by trauma I'd love to meet them because Yeah, I, I
1: haven't yet, No, but obviously slight, slight selection bar.
0: in my line of work. But, um. <laughs> but I think, for, well, yeah, I'm still going to I'm gonna stand by my statement. No, I not, do agree. Yeah, so yeah. perhaps it's our understanding of what trauma, how we define trauma as to perhaps making it more accessible.
1: Yeah, I think we are a very traumatised nation. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the wars we've been through, thinking about the number of... Um, people who've come here and settled after maybe experiencing trauma in their in their countries without ever having the capacity or maybe the permission to name it. I think Australian society holds a range of different forms of trauma and of course not at all forgetting the the, the initial, dispossession of lands which is which is caused so much harm to to aboriginal peoples
0: yes and of course we haven't even talked about intergenerational trauma that's a whole nother
1: uh, well that's where the stuff comes down through in families but yeah that is a that is a whole another conversation i think Mm. but i think you quite quite named it when you said that there probably isn't a family out there which hasn't experienced some form of trauma, even if there's a lot of secrets and a lot of barriers and defences around the trauma.
0: Yes, yes. So this is really everyone's business. Trauma is everyone's business. I think that's a message that I would like to convey in this conversation. And um, for those who might be interested in reading your book, Reclaim Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. So I like to finish our conversations on human cogs by asking the same, question to all our guests. Okay. And the question that we ask is, who do you think is doing human well? Oh my gosh.
1: Who do I think is doing human well? I almost feel like I'm really struggling with that question now, as you can hear, because I see so many people who are struggling to not do human very well. Um, I mean, Albanese feels like he's doing I, I don't know how he's doing personal human well, but I think he's doing compassionate leader well. <gasps> of course, Jacinta Arden. Mm-hmm. She she is definitely doing doing human well. She was brave and she quit while she was still ahead. She listened to what her brain and her body um, really were, were asking for, and she had the courage to, to take a step back, which I think is huge. And for me, that's probably doing human well because that's strength and compassion and moving away from kind of the hustle and grind culture, which I think is why I think that we aren't doing well. That's a whole nother topic, but I think she embodies all of those qualities I hold dear really well.
0: Mm beautiful yeah
1: yeah no, that was that was a good question thanks for that
0: <laughs> and it is difficult when you work with the yeah, populations yeah. that you work with you as you say your skew is to who's not doing human well but yeah exactly <laughs> but everyone wants to human well everyone yeah. wants that and you're helping people do that i've heard that very clearly in our chat so thank ahana you. thank you for joining us today and um for sharing for sure. something and if I'll repeat the name of the book again, Reclaim Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse by Dr. Ahona Guha. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Sabina. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do Do human well. well.